Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. On today's programme, joining me on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Nick Martin. Nick is the Managing Director of Systems Up, a highly regarded professional services company which delivers outstanding consultancy services with consistent year-on-year growth. Um, Nick, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Wonderful to be here, Scott. It is a um, fantastic day uh, for it, uh, maybe not weather-wise. It's very cloudy uh, down here, but uh, I suppose we are indoors and uh, we're in the warm out of the cold, which is um, an advantage. Um, but normally, um, to get sort of on track, at this point in the show, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we begin there because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourselves at Systems Up, just to what extent has it affected you and your operations? Well, we've been slightly lucky in that lots of my team are used to working from home anyway. But the interesting challenge we've seen is despite all of the technology, it's been quite a step for many organisations in terms of our engagement with them. You know, remote working, bringing ideas together, Um, cooperating as teams for some organizations um, has been an interesting challenge. And how has that collaboration been quite difficult over the uh, the last few months then? Well, technology plays a big part in what we do, but it is interesting to consider how much people collaborate in non-technological ways. Mm. So coffee room breakouts, uh, you know, brief walks outside, coffee shop sessions, all of those non-formal um, forums for, for collaboration, idea sharing and dialogue is somewhat absent in terms of how people are working now. Mm. And despite all the technology solutions we can put in place, that does still bring a degree of challenge in terms of idea sharing, bringing consensus, getting people together and driving a decision or a set of outcomes. It brings an interesting question to the debate over our working practices, doesn't it, as to whether there will be a sort of fully fledged move toward remote working in the future as a result of this, because there are many benefits toward having that human contact and having that conventional workplace setting, not just, of course, with idea sharing, as you said there, but also because we value that human contact so much from a mental health point of view as well. I think there's a very interesting point in there, and it's about um, you know stability of the family situation. It's about the value that being in the workplace brings. It's about that breath of fresh air in terms of traveling. And whilst um, many people are comfortable with the remote work situation, um, it is bringing, I think, quite a few psychological challenges for people. And and there's no doubt that that we'll see some of the impact of that. You know, we all worry about the economic hangover. But actually, there's an interesting social challenge which goes with this as well. Mm. 
And of course, with the remote working side of things, just to get back onto that um, briefly, um, it poses a new challenge for business leaders to have to lead from a distance in a sense, because it's a lot more difficult to measure productivity in that sense and just put procedures in place to make sure that people are doing what they should be doing rather than just take advantage of the situation. Absolutely. And I think it is interesting to see that it's a combination of some of the um, you know, traditional techniques such as discussing uh, key performance indicators, key tasks, all those kind of things regularly, as well as having regular catch-ups with people, either using the video technology or sometimes meeting in, in a socially distanced manner. So you have to have a somewhat different toolkit to be able to work with your team and your colleagues and your clients in this environment. And even when COVID-19 is no longer an issue, hopefully, and fingers crossed, we do have a working vaccine in place, be that within one year, be it two years, whenever. What do you think the workplace of the future is going to look like? Will we see the office returning in vogue or do you think more and more people will be working from home on a personal basis, maybe even in that sort of a hybrid sense between the two? Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because the demographics play a significant part as Mm. well as the industries. So you can look at a particular industry throughout the age groups and there'll be no challenge for working from home and they'll adopt that and they'll drive that and they'll be successful. Other sectors, not so much. The younger groups, the younger demographic groups, you know, all for the remote working, but there are certainly industries and groups of people who are still very much around the work from, from the office model. So, you know, we might see interesting situations where people will leave jobs because they don't offer a remote working or flexible working model. I'm sure it happens already. It it may well be we're going to face more of that in the future. And what industry also has to consider is the shift toward remote working is going to have a significant impact on the sort of city and town centre environment. There are a lot of businesses out there that do rely on the passing trade of commuters and they are going to be inevitably impacted. We're seeing such a, a shocking situation, aren't we, in terms of how this shift is, you know, I could almost use the term wrecking certain parts of the economy, you know, with such a dramatic um, impact. And, uh, you know, we've all got to do our bit to be able to support um, business areas like this where we can uh, without breaking any of the guidelines. So, you know, this is this is an economic tidal wave, really, in terms of how it changes you know, the way we operate as consumers and the way we operate as business people. And just for those younger generations of people that may be tuning into this, who may be looking at the economic situation and are downhearted by the effect it's going to have on their employment prospects in particular, as a business leader yourself, what advice would you have to give to those younger people to really get them to pick up their heads and start on the road to success, even with all of this uncertainty? I think they've got to use their personal networks as much as they can. You know, uh, through uh, technologies like LinkedIn and others, I've been trying to help colleagues I know who are looking for work, whether they be new starters or more experienced. Um, You know, people in that situation have got to think a little bit out of the box. They've got to use their networks. They've got to think differently about their skills. They've got to think about different approaches to potential employers. We've seen the interesting cases of the people who've been at railway stations with signs. You know, they've they've got to just take a different approach. These are very different times. They've got to go outside of their comfort zone and try and take a different approach and maybe do different things to pick up on a skill, undertake a job, do temporary work to try and push ahead. 
there are a couple of very important things to take away from that. That need for adaptability and versatility is one thing. Very important within the context of leadership itself. And businesses have been showing a tremendous amount of that during this period of time to get through this. But as well as that, it's the networking side of things you mentioned that I really, really like as well, Nick, because it just goes to show that we are not alone, are we, even as leaders within our professions? There are so many people that you can go to, that you can learn from, accumulate knowledge, gather experience. And indeed, leadership itself is all about learning, isn't it? We are never a finished product in our profession. We're learning every single day. It's a continuous process of development. Absolutely. And we also have to take responsibility for helping others. I mean, what are we worth as individuals if we can't help someone new looking for a job or someone we've known for a period of time looking for a job or an opportunity, either as a sounding board or introducing or trying to raise their profile. You know, we're always learning. We always need other people. And this is the time when actually we need to stand up and support the people we know, as well as learning more and evolving ourselves. And I'd also call on other leaders as well, people who are maybe directors to go and looking to other people and within their networks also, because it can feel very lonely at the top during a crisis. I suppose when you're an employee in an organisation, you can look up to your executives and your directors for that little bit of inspiration. But when you are the one at the top of the tree that's doing all of the inspiring and there isn't anybody above you to consult, those networks that you have out there, those are the people that you'll need to go to to try and find some just inspiration and reassurance of your own. I think that's really important. And also reaching out to them and seeing how they're doing. Mm. You know, one of the things I'll try to do each week is just make a note of all those people I've worked with before at at similar kind of levels and just drop a note out and see how they're doing and just exchange, you know, even if it's just pleasantries and support in terms of how they're doing. It's, um, It's very difficult. And I think it was, I read a quote the other day, I think it was Mark Carney who said, organizations and their leaders will be judged for how they perform and behave during this crisis. And I think that's a very personal statement as well in terms of how people Mm. need to operate. Exactly right. And certainly reaching out to other leaders and even doing something as simple as asking how they are, like you say, I mean, from the mental health point of view, as we've already gone over today, that can certainly go a very long way because when you're sucked into the everyday world of running a business, it can be difficult at the best of times, let alone during a time like this. Yeah, and I think that um, the other interesting aspect of the uh, the COVID economic hangover is new alliances will need to be formed. There'll be consolidation in sectors, mm. uh, different partnerships, all of those things. And, and those are by and large successful based on human interaction, your network, the people you're going to meet, the people you work with. So it's it's very important for everyone at every level to to just do that little bit more in terms of supporting each other, either in roles or obtaining business or executing business or just getting by. And we've seen an unprecedented amount of collaboration during this time through that recognition that businesses are all in the same boat. And there's no better example, of course, than the pharmaceutical companies trying to put together a working vaccine because the reason why it will be possible when it is ready to get it out to mass production so quickly, fingers crossed, if it all comes together, is because they've come together in collaboration and removed a lot of the steps of bureaucracy that normally would make that process much more long drawn out. And I think what's been interesting there is the sharing, the pooling of data. Yes. Um, you know, there's some interesting tech stuff there. But actually, what's been really important is those organizations have almost put their concern for their own IP 
to one side mm. and done some things for the good of mankind. Clearly, they're going to make money out of it, but actually that sharing of data, that sharing of information, that collaboration we've seen in that sector actually has been an eye-opener to me. It's a very positive thing. It is, and it's one of the few positives from this dark and dense cloud that's hung over all of us that hopefully we can certainly take forward from here into the future. And uh, the future is something I certainly would like to talk about, Nick, just before we do wrap things up, because I'm conscious that our time on the programme is beginning to draw to its close. Um, Over the course of the next 12 months, we know for a good portion of that time, we are going to have to continue to get to grips with the new normal and the challenges that it's bringing, um, not just for business, but also the wider economy as well, and also for us socially. But um, over this period of time, what is it at Systems Up that you are really hoping to achieve? And indeed, where do you see yourselves this time in a year when hopefully we'll be able to focus on the longer term future? Well, I think every business would want to be able to say that they need to grow. Um, they need to you know, survive this period of time and prosper with new customers. But actually, there's a more important element to that. And that is about um, growing your staff, rewarding them for their work, supporting them in everything they do in the workplace and outside, and growing the number of people you have working with you so that the overall collaboration, both internally and with clients, is, it, it continues to grow. You know, that's, that's very important, the, you know, the wellness of any company, the, the, the state of health of any team. And that has to be a fairly key item on the agenda for the next 12 months, because if you get that right, generally business opportunities come with it. Mm, exactly right. There will be many opportunities to come from this, as there always are when there is a crisis and when there is a recession. And it's just about making sure that we are in a position to capitalise on those opportunities that will be there. Um, Nick, I have to say it's been such a pleasure and an incredibly enlightening experience welcoming you onto the programme this afternoon. And I actually think it would be fantastic from my point of view and also for the listeners to our podcast to actually welcome you back onto the programme at some point in the next year, just to see how far in the time between we've come as a country and what state the economy and indeed business is in by then? Well, I'd love to, Scott. I mean, it's always a good opportunity to be able to reflect and think about the lessons both that we've faced Mm. and many others as well. So I would absolutely welcome it. Exactly right. And it's pivotal to what we're trying to do, of course, here, get the authentic voices of British industry out into the uh, the national discussion. Um, Nick, thank you ever so much once again for joining us. And most importantly, please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on, because we're not out of the woods with this yet. But let us hope that it won't be too much longer. The same for you, Scott. Stay well. I would reiterate that message to every single one of the listeners tuning in today as well. Please do stay well, look after yourselves and do be considerate of others because it makes such a key difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Nick Martin, Managing Director of Systems Up, onto today's programme. Next up on the programme, we will be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman. Lord Blunkett. Now, Lord Blunkett is a politician who enjoyed a distinguished career despite being blind from birth, holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He has been a member of the House of Lords since August 2015. The interview between Matthew and Lord Blunkett will be coming up shortly. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? 
Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. Have uh, not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff, and of course whether they can receive the the grant, ten thousand or twenty-five thousand. All, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for a British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. and. In that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side 
effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere Uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, Those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible, proportional 
balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings. 
uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well.
So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, 
when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need 
an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become 
the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.